Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most beneficent, the most merciful. The Islamic Propagation Office at Rabwa, www.islamhouse.com. It's pleased to present to you this lecture. Our praise due to Allah and Allah's peace and blessings and His last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic of today's khutbah was the good word, al-kalima al-tayyibah. And the principle of the good word in Islam is one which governs all aspects of our practice of Islam. From the time we enter Islam to the time we die, Prophet Muhammad has encouraged us to always keep in mind the good word. Allah in the Quran describes the good word as being like a very firm tree the strong trunk. Its roots go deep into the ground and anchor it very firmly. And its branches reach up into the sky, gathering all the nutrition which will aid it to continue its growth and to continue in a healthy life. Now this example which Allah gives in the Quran, it is for us to reflect a metaphor or a simile in which he describes what is good as being firm and lasting, which cannot be destroyed. It gains its strength from Revelation, the branches which reach out are many green, gaining from the sunlight, the light of the sun, light referring to guidance, Revelation, we find Allah calling the Quran, light calling the Prophet Muhammad light, referring to himself in terms of light, all of this. This is the source of guidance, light in darkness, darkness being misguided. That, that firm word, whose basis is revelation, provides for the individual a firm basis to his life. And he goes on in the Quran to describe the filthy or the evil words as being the opposite having no no basis which will anchor it, its trunk, its leaves, virtually non-existent, it is not a source of guidance, it is something which is evil and is ugly, it may last for a period of time, but eventually it will go. As Allah describes elsewhere, that the truth stands out clearly from falsehood. That the truth will destroy falsehood. 
Now, for us in life, the best of words is the declaration of faith. La ilaha illallah. This is the best of words. Everything in Islam contains the good word or good words. However, the best of all that can be said is the declaration of faith. La ilaha illallah. Because this is what takes a person from hell and puts him in paradise. This is the most critical word. This is the word which makes the difference between this life being a source of benefit for our everlasting life or it being a source of punishment for our everlasting life. However, though Prophet Muhammad said, Man qala la ilaha illallah whoever says, La ilaha illallah, there is no God, nothing worthy of worship, but Allah will enter paradise. This is the promise of the Prophet Muhammad He said that. However, in other statements of his and we always have to remember, when we find a statement of the Prophet when we find a verse from the Qur'an, we have to always look at these statements, these verses, in the context of the whole of Islam. We don't just grab on to what seems pleasing to us. Because yes, it's very nice to say, oh, whoever says, Lai Lai Allah goes to Father, finish. I say, Lai Lai Allah, that's it. Doesn't matter what I do after that. You know, as long as I've said it, I'm guaranteed by that. It is what it seems very appealing to people, and people hold on to it. And figure that's it. However, the Prophet also on other occasions has added clarification to that. Not just whoever says, La ilaha Allah, but whoever says, La ilaha Allah, sincerely from his heart. The clarification is there. It is not just merely saying the word. Those words have to come sincerely from the heart for those words to be the key to paradise. It means that what you say as a ritual, what is said for us, or we repeat as a child, or we repeat in prayer, what is said in this ritualistic fashion is of no benefit to us. It is of no benefit to us. In the sense that it is not going to be the key to paradise. It may be, as children, we teach our children to say, we try to explain to them the meaning so that they grow up with a consciousness, with an understanding, so that when they reach a stage of development where they can now absorb the concept and make a choice, they have something by which to make a choice. So this statement, La ilaha illallah, only is the key if it is said sincerely from the heart. And we know it is a fourth part of the first pillar of the class. The Declaration of Faith. Shahadatan. 
This is the first part of the Shahadatah. However, let us not be fooled. Because when one says La ilaha illallah sincerely from one's heart, meaning it is a true statement, an expression of faith, then La ilaha illallah should be manifest in the actions of that person in his 24 hour a day life for the rest of his life. If it was said sincerely from his heart or her heart, then it must be manifest in action. This is why according to Islamic theology or concept, faith is not just a statement with the tongue. It is described as a statement with the tongue, reflected from the heart, and manifest in the action. That is the totality of faith. That's what makes faith. Once you remove any portion of those, then the faith is no longer there. It is not the faith which is acceptable to Allah. It must come all together. It must be reflected by the actions themselves. And this is why after that first pillar of faith, which is the declaration of one's faith to the community, the next four pillars of Islam are actions. Actions proving the sincerity of that statement, that declaration of faith. Actions. Because they say actions speak louder than words. So, our declaration of faith, for it to be the Kalimatwajiba, the good word, which will be the key to paradise, then it should be reflected in our lives. We should be affected by it. When we say there is nothing worthy of worship but Allah, this means that we do not submit our wills to anything, to anyone but Allah. Anything to which we submit our will becomes a God for us besides Allah. As Allah said in the Quran also, have you seen the one who takes his desires as his Lord? Have you seen the one whose desires becomes his God? What does it mean? It means that one who lives his life or her life according to their desire, they have worshipped other than Allah. Whatever is pleasing to us, this is what we do. Not what is pleasing to Allah. If it happens to be pleasing to Allah, alhamdulillah. But if it isn't pleasing to Allah, it doesn't matter. What is pleasing to us comes first. The one who lives that kind of a life has worshipped and taken as a God besides Allah, instead of Allah, his own desires or her own desires. This means that when Allah has commanded us to get up in the morning at quarter to four and go out of our homes and pray in the masjid 
This is what is pleasing to Allah. What is pleasing to us is to sleep, to stay in that bed and not get up until the alarm clock rings for us to get up to eat, wash ourselves and go to work. That is what is pleasing to us. So if we choose that one and we leave the one which is pleasing to Allah, then we have destroyed La ilaha illallah. We have destroyed it. No, we say it. Anybody ask you, are you Muslim? You say, yes, I'm Muslim. And the trouble says, no, you're not really a Muslim. You're ready to kill that person. But your life does not reflect La ilaha illallah. You have not submitted. Islam in Arabic comes from what they say, and it's Islam. Surrender. It is peace, as-salam, but it is fundamentally surrender. One surrenders one's will to Allah. As Jesus is quoted in the Gospel, the saying, none of you will enter the kingdom of heaven. None of you who calls on God, saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven except he who does the will of the Father. This is what the key to paradise is submission of the human will to the will of God. That we do not do what is pleasing to people but displeasing to Allah. We seek to please people even if it means displeasing Allah. This is disbelief. In fact, though you may not say it, it is in fact disbelief. So if one's husband does not wish to practice Islam, or one's wife does not wish to practice Islam, for the husband or the wife to go along with that husband or wife, because that is pleasing and it will maintain harmony in the home, then one has pleased people at the expense of their religion, their faith. They have cast away the keys to paradise. And the Prophet had expanded the concept of the good word to such a degree that he said, Al-Kalimatu Tayyiba Sadaqa. That the good word is charity. It means that throughout our life, wherever we have an opportunity to say something good, then we should do so. It is charity. It is counted by Allah as good deeds which will increase our scale of good deeds on the Day of Judgment. It is the basis of human relations, of social relations in Islam. The good word. Muslims in the Muslim society communicate with each other using good words. Communicating using good words. They choose the good words over the evil words. Because it's the good words 
create good feelings. We know personally, our own experience tells us, when somebody says something good to us, it makes us feel better. You might be feeling lousy, maybe having a bad day, and somebody says a good word to you and your whole day improves, your whole day changes. Good word is charity. So for the Muslim, even in the times of anger, in the time when he gets angry with others, and of course, anger is something which we, none of us escapes. We try not to be angry, but it happens for us. And the Prophet has said that the strong individual is not the one who is able to wrestle and defeat everybody else in wrestling, but is the one who is able to control himself in the time of anger. So for the believer, he controls himself. And he follows the guidance of the Prophet in which he said, فَلْيَقُلِ الْخَيْرِ أَوْ I will say good. Say something good or be quiet. Better not to say anything. If you don't have something good to say, no matter what the circumstances, better not to say anything. In this way, you don't say things which can come back to haunt you, which can destroy your future. As the Prophet spoke, you know, of people speaking and saying things without realizing it, thinking that it's insignificant, not even conscious of what they're saying, and they commit great sins with these words. And the sins build up until they come back in front of them on the day of judgment. We have to be very careful with the words that we use. And amongst the good things, the good words, is giving thanks. As the Prophet said, Man lam lam Whoever does not thank people does not thank Allah. Whoever doesn't thank people for what they do for them, somebody has done something good for you, for you not to thank that person is not to thank Allah. Like something, you know, people usually say, Alhamdulillah, something good is done for you. You say, Alhamdulillah. You feel you thank the Lord that did not know. Islam tells you that you should also thank that person. Because in thanking that person, you have truly thanked Allah. In thanking that person. Why? Why does Islam emphasize and encourage the thanking of people for the good that they do? Because when you thank people, this encourages them to do more good. You know it yourself. When you've done good for somebody and they don't thank you, then the evil thought comes to your mind. What's the point in helping this person? I don't think I'm doing anything good for this person again. You know? That's the evil thought comes back to The person doesn't appreciate it. It's very difficult for us to continue to do good feeling that those that we're doing good for do not appreciate the good that we do. So, not thanking the person decreases your own good deeds, the good deeds of those around you. So Islam encourages it in order to increase the good deeds. When a person is thanked, then that makes them feel a lot better. They feel that their, their actions, their efforts are appreciated, and this encourages them to do even more good. 
However, the same thing again, it's not just the word. Thank you. You see? Because you know how many times do people say thank you? And then when you call on that person to help you, you find that person, oh, I can't, I'm too busy, or I'm doing this, or I'm doing that, or whatever. And they can't help you. They're not prepared to help you. The thanking you is not just the word thanking you, but it is, again, coming from the heart for it to be thanks to Allah. You are truly thankful to that person. It means that when that person also is in need, that you come to their help. If you are, if you're, if it's possible, or you may be in circumstances where it is impossible, but as long as there is a possibility for you to help, then you do the same. As the Prophet said, that none of us have truly believed until we love for our brother what we love for ourselves. As we love that our brother would help us, we should also love to help him or her. For faith to be real. So faith must be more than just words. It must also be in action, in practice. Reciprocating good with good. The Prophet also said, that we should give salam, the greetings, regularly to everybody. To those who we don't know as well as those who we know. There's greater blessing in giving salams to somebody we don't know than those who we know. We should try always to give salams whenever we have the opportunity. Why? This is the greeting of the Prophet. You find when you look into the, 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 the Bible, especially you find Jesus saying the same thing, talking to his companions, greeting them with greetings of peace. The same thing. Peace. Islam is about peace. It is expressed in our initial greeting. It's expressed throughout our practice of Islam. So we encourage reminding people, asking Allah to bless people with peace. Because this is the foundation, part of that foundation of Islam. And, of course, we have the principle that if a non-Muslim says to us, it should be mentioned, As-salamu alaykum, we respond to them, wa alaykum. For some people it's a bit difficult. Yeah, it seems not fair. Why we should only say to them, wa alaykum, when they say, As-salamu alaykum to us. Why Prophet told us? Because this is not just something I'm suggesting that you should do. This is what Prophet said. If the disbelievers say to you, Assalamu alaikum, you respond to them, Wa alaikum. They say, May peace be on you, and you answer, and on you. You don't have peace. Why? Is this some kind of unfairness? Is this anything like like, like what has been attributed to the Jews when they say that you don't make riba interest amongst yourself, but you can do it to the Gentiles? So this is what they've changed to the Old Testament to say. 
that for the Jews, they don't, it's, it's prohibited for them to take interest from each other. But to the Gentiles, okay. Is that how it is in Islam? We say, Assalamu alaikum, we speak for our brothers in Islam. But when we deal with the non-Muslims, we only say, I don't know. Is this something similar? No. Not in any way. The Prophet he told the companions to do that. Why? Because the Jews used to come to him and his companions and say, Assalamu alaikum. Now it sounds just like Assalamu alaikum. But what I just said was, may poison be on you. Assalamu alaikum. As opposed to Assalamu alaikum. Now if you say Assalamu alaikum very quickly, it sounds just like Assalamu alaikum. And they were doing it. Wishing evil, poison and death on the Prophet Muhammad You know, expecting him to respond with wishes of peace. So, he instructed his companions. And Muslims, till the day of judgment, respond, Wa alaikum. Wa alaikum means, I am on you, whatever you send to me. If it were peace, peace also be to you. If it was evil, well, evil be to you. So, because though a non Muslim may say, Assalamu alaikum, and it's clear that it is Assalam, peace be on you. He may be saying that with a, with a mind or an intention, you know, may God destroy your home. May you be cursed, damned. But in his words, he's coming out as salam alaykum. So what you, what you give him back is, whatever your intention is, may it also be on you. If it's good, good for you. If it's evil, may evil be on you. So this is why we have been instructed. Now, the Imam went on to point out that when we are addressing people, it is part of Islamic principle that when we talk to them, we talk to them in different fashions. When we talk to a child, it's different from when we talk to an adult. When we talk to a leader, it's different, or the head of an establishment, it's different from when we talk to the general uh, workers in an establishment. When we talk to a scholar, it's different from when we talk to a leader. Now, this principle is not one wherein we are trying to curry favor for ourselves by talking in a special way to somebody. No, this is just taking into account the person who you are addressing. Islam encourages us to speak widely, to speak in the appropriate fashion. So, when we speak with people according to their station, for the purpose of facilitating or making easy our communication, this is perfectly valid in Islam. However, when we speak to people in a different way, because we're trying to get something, you know, we're talking to a leader, and we speak to him very nice, though in our hearts we feel this leader is a, is a criminal. This head of the company is an enemy. 
But we're speaking to a man because there's something we want from him. Then of course this is what Islam does not like. Speaking in a nice way to people in order to achieve something of this world. In other words, we sacrifice our religion. The person is in evil, is in wrong. We should speak out against what he's doing. But instead of doing that, we put our religion in our back pocket and we go for something of the dunya by talking to him, smiling in his face and going through this case. This is what is despised. However, if we do it in the opposite, wherein we sacrifice of the things of this life, of the dunya, in order to achieve an end for the next life, which is your religion, then this is appropriate and good in Islam. You're giving advice to a child. You could do it from a very haughty and loud position, but you don't do so. You drop down to the level that is aiding you to communicate with that child. You put aside something of uh, your, your dunya here, your authority, put it aside in order to communicate, to help get Islam across to that child. This is the sacrifice which Islam calls for. And this is not considered in any way hypocrisy. And the Prophet was also quoted by the Imam saying that we should protect ourselves from the fire. Even if it is only with a half of a date. If all we have to give in charity is half of a date, to give it in charity, to protect ourselves from the hellfire, is commendable, something which we should strive to do. And if we are not able, then we should speak the good word. The good word, which is charity. So whatever opportunities, we should never consider any opportunities to do good, whether it is in action or in words. Too insignificant, whether it be a half of a date or it be one good statement, we should never consider it too insignificant that we don't do it. And then he quoted the verse from the Quran which Allah said, وَلَا تَسْتَوِ الْحَسَنَةُ وَلَا السَّيِّعَةُ إِسْفَعَ بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ That we should protect or push away the evil with that which is better. فَإِذَا الَّذِي بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَهُ عَدَاوَةٌ فَكَأَنَّهُ وَلِيٌ حَمِيمٌ That what you will find is that the very one between you and him, there was enmity by 
pushing off or warding off his evil with good, you will find that person a close and dear friend. This is the advice of the Quran. It's very easy for us to respond with evil with evil. Evil for evil. And in Islam, we are permitted. Somebody curses you, you are permitted to curse the person back to the degree that he has cursed you. However, to not curse the person back and give a good word is better. The Islam takes into account, you know, our nature. Not everybody has the strength to give up that right. So Islam allows that right. But not to go beyond what was done to you. But the better which we are recommended to do is to say something good or to do something good in response. And that good will eventually push away the evil of the person who has turned evil towards you and will change that person's heart. This is the promise of Allah. If you are able to work consistently with it, it will change that person's heart. In general, of course, whenever you know, we get principles like this, this is in general. It's not to say that there are not people who no matter what good you do to them, they just take it as being a source of weakness on your part and it just increases that in evil. Now you find these are existence. They are not the majority of mankind. They are few. But we should also be aware of them. And he quoted, quoted the, the khutbah by quoting the verse from the Quran in which Allah mentions that the good word it prevents Satan from coming between people and from destroying relationships. That when people do things we should give it the best interpretation. As we say, give people the benefit of the doubt. If there is a doubt in what the person has done, why they're doing it, we give them the best thought, what it was called khutmazan. We try to find excuses why the person did that. You know, maybe this circumstance or that circumstance or the other circumstance. We don't immediately go to the evil thought. He did it because of this or because of that, you know. No, we try to give the best, you know, interpretation. Once this becomes the way of the believer, then you find that life becomes a lot more peaceful. Your dealings with people will be a lot better. You yourself will find a sense of contentment and rest because the suspicion which Allah taught in the Quran saying that, you know, in the Ba'dul Zani Ismi, you know, a portion of of uh, suspicion or doubt is sin. This suspicion is very, very dangerous. It leads to all kinds of evil. So as Muslims, we are enjoined to avoid suspicion as much as possible. Try to good it, put a good import on whatever people are doing. Interpret it positively. Because the suspicion creates a constant state of turmoil in the individual. It hurts 
psychologically, spiritually hurt the person who was suspicious. Not trusting others. Always misinterpreting what people are doing. You can't find peace there. So, in summing up, the principle of the Kelim the good word, is a foundation, a foundational principle in Islam. It is one by which Muslims, or a person becomes a Muslim, Muslim, we enter Islam with and killing a tayyibah, la ilaha illallah. And we leave this world, we try to leave this world with that same killing a tayyibah. That when first people are dying, when they're on the, the deathbed, we should say to them, remind them, I don't say, La ilaha illallah. Make this their last word. We come in to face this way, and we should try to leave this world with those last words. Again, those words being sincerely from the heart. Some people have misinterpreted the statement of the Prophet to mean, you know, that you just keep saying it over a dead person. So you'll find people, you know, after the person is dead, they will sit by his, uh, the dead body and be saying, say, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, you know. Or as the body is being carried, they're saying that, or saying it at the grave. No, you can't help them anymore. What we are instructed to do is to encourage that person, because when a person is dying, Satan comes to him. Try to get him to say words of disbelief puts doubts in his mind and, and tries to, you know, to capture him. This is the last hope, last chance for him to take that person away. So we try to remind them of Allah. Help that person who is dying to remember Allah, make the trust in Allah be the last thoughts, the last words. So, we come in to faith with a good word and we should try to leave this world with a good word. And in between, we should try whatever opportunity we get to spread that good word. Hopefully, if we are able to put this into practice, not just in the statement or the saying of the good word, it will manifest itself in our actions. We will do good deeds. If this becomes a part of our nature, a part of our way, that whenever we have an opportunity to say something good to people, to encourage them to good, we do this, then it will also affect us, reflect in our own action. Because if we are encouraging people to do good, and then we think, oh, I told this person to do this, but I'm not doing it, you know, I better straighten myself up. This helps us. It doesn't mean you can't call people to good or do good unless you're doing good. No. You should always try to say the good word. This is why something evil, when we've done something evil, Prophet has prohibited us from speaking about it. If we have an evil thought, we're not held to account for it unless we speak about it, it becomes an evil word, or we act on it. This is when it becomes against us. This is why we don't speak of the evil that we do. We don't speak because all it does is spread evil. It encourages evil. So if we've done something bad, we ask Allah's forgiveness, and we try to atone for it by doing other good and by seeking good.
Okay, that's uh, basically what I picked up from the Hutba. Uh, if anybody else um, picked up anything else, or the Arabic-speaking brothers who listen to the Hutba, if there's anything that I missed and would like to add, uh, welcome. Uh, brothers, questions besides, besides the greeting to non-Muslims, what else should we say to them? When we, what way should we speak to them? Well, of course, conversation will depend on the circumstance, you know. Uh, if somebody asks you about your children, how are your children? Then there's nothing wrong in Islam for you to ask, how are your children? Right? You know, if somebody is on your job, you know, a technical situation where he's requiring certain information for you from you, then you respond to him in kind. You know, uh, if a person now is on a social, simply social level where you invite a non-Muslim to your home then, of course, that invitation should have behind it the goal of conveying Islam to them. To invite them to your home just merely for neighborliness, just to be friendly. In Islam, this is discouraged. This is discouraged. That time and effort should be spent with Muslims. It is just about being neighborly and friendly, that time and the effort, the money, whatever you spend here, that should be for the Muslims. So now, if it's going to include non-Muslims, then there should be something in it which is going to benefit them, which is something of Islam. Because that is your primary duty as a Muslim in dealing with non-Muslims to convey the message of Islam to them. You may not be able to say it openly every opportunity, every circumstance, so you may do it under social circumstances, etc., but your dealings with non-Muslims should be one of da'wah, calling them to Islam. That is, we should not get into arguments or to argue with the people of the book except with that which is better, you know, in our arguments. That is, in the case where the people of the book, that is, Christians or Jews, may get into an argument with us when they try to put down Islam, we do not respond to them by 
putting down Jesus or putting down Moses. No. If they curse Prophet Muhammad we don't curse Prophet Jesus or Prophet Moses. No. We don't respond to them in kind. We try to, when they bring these type of things to us, we try to respond to them using examples or, or information which is positive. We try to correct their misunderstanding. So we bring what is better than what they brought. We show ourselves in discussion to be better. Those who are, you know, outside the discussion who are observing, it will strike them. If they see the Christian, you know, cursing and saying all these things, and you are responding in positive things, you have a marked impression on the person watching from the outside. And quite likely, if you continue in a positive fashion, it will affect even that person who is arguing with you in this very negative fashion. So this is the guidance that the law, you know, has given to us in terms of communicating, in terms of discussion with the language. And this, of course, is very important in terms of power, because, you know, unfortunately, we do find some people who are involved in uh, debates with non-Muslims, with Christians, resorting to uh, statements or things which are actually very, very gross, very offensive, you know. And um, though it may win the argument, it loses the, 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 the spirit or the, or the soul of those people who are trying to capture. This is why it is, in general, better if we try to convey Islam, we try to convey from the positive, rather than convey from the negative. You know, concentrating on the negative aspects of Christianity as opposed to concentrating on the positive aspects of Islam. Of course, in discussion, you may and you will have to utilize some of that other information, but you don't make it the crux of your argument, the crux of your presentation. You bring it into the discussion where necessary. Yeah, this is another verse sharing the same general meaning. Also, that we should call to the way of our Lord with wisdom and a good preaching. And we should argue with them with the things which are better. You think using the better uh, words, the better examples, showing the better character, moral, morality. This is the way. Other questions? Then I will see also, you know that there are also Muslims like them. When you see them, Assalamu alaikum, 
brother's question, you know, there are some people, Muslim, who when you greet them, Assalamu alaikum, they reply, Ahlan. Or ala ala. Or just salam. You know, should, or they may not reply at all. Should we continue to greet such people? Well, of course, we get the reward for the greeting. We don't lose anything by them not responding to our greeting. This is what we have to consider. There's no loss on our part. It's a loss on their part. So, it shouldn't stop us from greeting people salam alaikum. Of course, what I would say is that if the opportunity comes and we say salam alaikum, the person responds, hala hala. He says, brother, you know, the response to that salam alaikum is, wa alaikum salam. We use it as an opportunity to educate this person. Because they may have gotten into a practice without realizing it, you know, because everybody else is doing it around them. Not necessarily that they're deliberately doing it. They have a choice in their mind to say assalamu alaikum, wa alaikum assalam, or say hala hala, and they say, no, I don't want to say wa alaikum assalam. To this person, I'm just going to say hala hala. No. And just have it. It's the thing that the person has grown up with. So, sometimes all of us need, you know, a reminder from time to time. So we use it as an opportunity to remind. You know? Salam. 
This is a right that the Muslim has on you. So when a person does not respond, he's actually committing a sin. It may not be a major sin in the sense that it was put in hell, but it is a sin, which added up with other sins could end up putting in hell. So it is an opportunity that we should use to, to educate others, and it should not stop us from continuing to do good. Okay, what, what I said concerning the getting up in the morning for Fajr, when a person chooses not to get up at quarter to four, whether by an alarm clock or waking up with the Adhan, however he gets up. And he gets up and gets to the masjid and prays in congregation with the, with the community area. When he chooses, instead of doing that, to set his alarm clock at work starts at 7.30. You know, he has to get up at 6.30 to take his breakfast and wash himself up and put his clothes on or iron his clothes or whatever. When he chooses to set his alarm clock for 6.30 instead, that person is going according to his desire. His desire is to sleep all the way until 6.30. To not get up. Right? What is pleasing to himself becomes more important than pleasing God, Allah. So he has taken his desire then as his God. He has submitted himself to his desire, which has led him to disobey God. So I'm not talking about whether you get up by the Adhan or get up by the alarm clock. I'm not talking about the difference between those two. I'm talking about when a person decides deliberately to miss pleasure, not pray. But if he's deciding deliberately to miss the prayer, Fajr prayer, missing it and not praying it in the morning. Huh? No, no. No, you see, that prayer, once he has deliberately missed that prayer which goes out with the rising of the sun, once he has deliberately done that, that is an act of disbelief. Abandoning the prayer deliberately is an act of disbelief. This is this this is deliberate abandonment of the prayer. It is better for him 
as messed up as he may be, to give, to try. I mean, if he sets the clock then, he may get up, he may not. He may hear the clock or he may not. But at least he had the intention and he tried. If he got up then later and he prayed, then that's different. But for him to deliberately and intentionally abandon the prayer within its prescribed time, unless he is, you know, in the circumstance where, for example, we know the prayer of Zuhor and the prayer of Asr may be combined in the time of Zuhor and the time of Asr, you know, if he's a traveler under certain circumstances and sickness and so on, so there are certain times when he's allowed to make combinations of prayer, of Zuhor and Asr, Mother and Isha, but Fajr, there is no combination. That's why God said that, you know, the, um, one of the uh, signs of the munafiq, of the hypocrite, the one who calls himself a Muslim and pretends to be a Muslim, but he's a disbeliever in, inside, is his inability to pray Fajr. So that's the biggest thing. It's a sign of disbelief. So when he deliberately, you know, but it's not to say that he can't come back. If he has done it, he asks Allah's forgiveness. Allah's forgiveness, mercy is, is, is what? As long as he does it before he dies, he can be forgiven. So he seeks Allah's forgiveness if he has done it in the past. Then he asks for Allah's forgiveness for what he has done. You know, I'm not saying that that act is an act of disbelief. It doesn't mean that it means he now becomes a total disbeliever. You know what I'm saying? The difference between an act of disbelief and becoming a total disbeliever. When a person abandons prayer altogether, he becomes a total disbeliever. When he abandons a given prayer, that is an act, an individual act of disbelief. So, he can seek forgiveness from Allah, in both cases still. Seek forgiveness from Allah and return to the prayer and Allah's mercy can, uh, in all persons, if he becomes sincere in committing himself back to establishing that prayer in his proper time, you know, for the pleasure of Allah. Oh, okay, just a minute. You have a response on that? Yeah, it's not other, but it's acceptable. Yeah. Okay, it and this is why Prophet said that these are judged by their intention. Meaning that there are some people who will get up for Fajr and pray in the mosque, get zero for it. It will be against them on the Day of Judgment. And there are some people who will miss Fajr, praying it after sunrise, 
get the full reward for it and, you know, it be helping them to paradise. These are extreme examples, right? I'm giving you meaning full. What do I mean by that? I mean, you have some people, a man in his home, he may be living with his parents. His father is a Mufawah. So it is unseeming for his son not to be in the masjid. So the son, because it would be a, a, a dishonor to the family and an embarrassment to his father, he goes to the masjid. They don't believe. In his heart, his, his mind is elsewhere. He's just doing it, you know, because of this circumstance. That's why, you know, when he gets a chance to go study overseas, you know, as soon as he gets off the plane in New York City, you see him, you know, he's, he's in the disco, he's just partying. So, though he was playing country there, it was not, because of his intention, a righteous deed on his part. Just an action, a ritual he was going through. Whereas the other person had the sincere intention to get up, etc. However, due to Allah's destiny, he didn't wake up. You know, I thought Muhammad and his companions, on one circumstance, you know, it's recorded that they went to sleep and they didn't wake up until after sunrise. You know, he told the comparison to get out of this area here, this is, you know, the influence of Shaitan here, they moved shifted the area and they made the plan. So, this is where intentions ultimately determine the actions. However, in general, those who are going to fudge I mean, inshallah, they have good intentions. People who are going to be getting up in the morning to make that prayer, the vast majority, inshallah, are going to have that good intention. And it is something which is prescribed for all of us. The so this is, you know, further emphasizing the importance, again, you know, of overcoming our personal desires. So this is what it all boils back down to. Our desires, sleep is a natural desire. It's not a sin to sleep. But when it becomes something which now causes us to disobey Allah, then it becomes sinful. So Islam, what Islam does is it puts our desires within certain bounds. It sets parameters and, and, and channels them in a positive direction, a way which is beneficial to us, to the society, to our religion, to our dunya, our daily lives, etc. That's why you can include in this, for example, smoking. Why, why, why smoking becomes something sinful from this point of view? Because when a person becomes an addict to cigarettes, he has submitted his will to other than Allah. He can't give it up. He doesn't have the will to give it up. And this is something which is harmful to him, which he knows is harmful, and which, you know, is cursed, it is prohibited, 
but he cannot give it up because he has submitted his will to it. If Islam does not want us to submit our will to anything, anyone but Allah. Okay. Thank you and shukran. No, thank you. Khair and and thank you. Well, you see, in this area here now, when, when we go beyond Assalamu alaikum wa alaikum salam into other ways of expressing thanks, not among Muslims even, to say shukran or to say jazakullah khair, of course, jazakullah khair is better than just shukran. It's better. Because you are also asking, you're also asking Allah to reward that person with good for the good that they have done. It is more than just saying, I appreciate what you have done. So, it is, that one is better. But to say shukran is okay. Jazakumullah khair, it means, or jazakumullah khair, it means, may Allah reward you with good for the good you have done. Well, I'm sorry, I've not done any research into that field. Brothers uh, said that he heard that the Prophet only responded giving thanks by saying Jazakallah Khair and that he was not reported that he responded by saying Shukra. I have not done research, I don't recall to. to to do that, you know, and um, that's something maybe uh, we can ask some of the brothers to check for us. Yeah. Yeah, I guess this could be used, you know, where this hadith which the Imam mentioned, man lam whoever doesn't thank the people using the term shukran here, shukr, doesn't thank Allah. So the term shukr is here, he didn't say, whoever doesn't say to people, jazakallah khair. <laughs> so this could be, you know, indirectly used to say, well, it does say shukran, you know. Yeah. You know, the term shukr, you know, or, you know, giving thanks is something which includes all of the various methods. Jazakumullah khair is just a way, another method of shukr, of giving thanks. Yes, this is dua. Shukran by itself, maybe not, but if you consider if your, your intention behind it is it, 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 if your intention behind it is um, uh, 
saying, for example, um, there's, a, there's a way, it was just in my mind, it slipped me. Shakar Allahu Lakum. You know, may Allah uh, give thanks to you. You know, if, I, if that is my intention behind it, then my term shukran can be carrying the same, you know, Okay, go ahead. What happens if she doesn't she doesn't know. Why does she believe? And every time that one comes to the only reason is for the position of the brain, which is missed, is she wants to have the voice of the Okay. Okay. We have a circumstance. Our brother is expressing from his wife that she knows of a in fact, a Muslim. In fact, meaning that she is praying five times a day, fasting Ramadan and everything. However, and she has been in this state for the last 25 years, uh, she has raised her children as Muslims, doing the same thing. But she is married, she's, but she is married to a non-Muslim all this time. And she has not declared herself to be a Muslim. If you ask her, are you a Muslim? She will say no. For fear that if she declares herself to be a Muslim, her husband would divorce her. Oh, she fears that she would have to divorce him. Well, this is a case where our sister, with all of the best of intentions, is committing shirk. She has turned her love. Shirk is a form of idolatry, worshipping others besides Allah. This is shirk. Well, how does she do it here? Because love ultimately should be directed to Allah alone. That ultimate source of love which is going to determine your actions. She has now directed that form of love which belongs to Allah to her husband. So, she loves her husband so much that she would prefer to displease Allah by not declaring her faith and keep her husband than to displease her husband by having to divorce him and please Allah. See, the, the reality is that if she is in fact a Muslim, then, for these 25 years, she has been living in sin. Because for a Muslim woman, 
to be married to a non-Muslim man, this is a sin. She is committing fornication. So for these 25 years, day in, day out, she is building fornication, sin of fornication on herself. So though she may pray, she may fast, do the other actions, the body of sin that she has built up against herself in terms of this continual fornication and directing a part of her worship to other than Allah, this may cancel the effect of what Islam she has. And she may not benefit from it in the next life. Her children may come up and become Muslims and they are benefited. But she may not. Of course, ultimately this is with Allah. Huh? Ultimately this is with Allah. But if we are to judge things as they are, we would say that that woman is not declaring her faith and this is not under a case of duress. You see, if it was a case where a woman became a Muslim secretly, but did not announce it to her husband for fear that her husband might kill her, or her family might kill her. You know, you have some families that are very, you know, violently anti-Islamic, you know. So, for fear of her life, she keeps her Islam secret. That's a different circumstance. You know, that is permissible. But in this case where it is that she feared losing her husband because of her love for her husband, then this is not permissible. This is not a justified circumstance. This becomes an act of shirk on her part. And she is in sin. No way out. The only way out for her is to declare her Islam. And if her husband refuses to accept this love, to separate from her husband. Well, there are different opinions, you know, you know, as far as separating, it means initially separating in the bed. I mean, that, as soon as she declares her Islam, that stops immediately. So then we ask after that is fornication. In terms of actually leaving the home and, you know, everything else, she can give the person opportunity to find out about Islam and to accept Islam in a reasonable amount of time when she sees that, you know, if the person is responding positively and coming towards Islam, then she can continue. But if she sees that he's just away and not interested and opposed and trying to create difficulties for her and stop her from practicing herself, then she needs now to care. So the question is not of which is better, I already said that what she's doing is haram, that the only way out for her. To declare her Islam but remain with him. Hmm. Yeah, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, it is better for her to declare her Islam and remain with the man than not to declare her Islam. 
and the best is for him to declare Islam and get away from the land. Because of course, surely, to declare Islam, at least that puts her in the category of Islam. And uh, the separation is something that she has to struggle with. But that's a better situation than for her to remain not declaring her Islam. Yeah. Right. If the children grew up as Muslims and, and declared their own Islam, and if she died in that state, they couldn't even ask Allah's forgiveness for her. To save her from Pharaoh. But, I mean, an example of, of what? From But in this particular circumstance, what is it? Yeah, yeah, but brother, it, it, it's not here. Yeah, well, no, but I'm just saying the reality of her circumstance is very difficult to bring it into this context. I mean, the only thing that we can use in this context here is the is the fact that this person, in spite of the fact that she was married to, you know, a leader of this belief, that she turned to Allah. Allah gives her as an example of, you know, the best of women, you know, who sought uh, his protection and sought to do righteousness in spite of her circumstance. But we have a practical circumstance here now, you know, um, Alhamdulillah, we can say for her she should make the dua of, you know, the wife of Pharaoh, but it, it, I mean, it needs also a declaration of faith. You know, um, in her, in the case of the wife of Pharaoh, uh, we don't know that she did not declare her faith and this was something secret. Or, you know, in her case, in any case, you know, Pharaoh, what he would have done to her is a different circumstance. She is not staying with Pharaoh because uh, she, she, she didn't declare her faith because she didn't want to lose Pharaoh. She's asking God to save her from him. This is different from the, the circumstance we have here where we have a woman who is in love with her husband and doesn't want to leave him. Yeah, well, yes, yes. I mean, we, the, but the main point for her, as we said, is that she needs to declare her faith. This is number one for her. And then she has to deal with the issue of 
separating from her husband. This is what is required of her according to the Sharia. Uh, but it is better for her if she feels that she cannot let her husband go, her weakness is there. It is better for her to declare her faith and remain with her husband than to not declare her faith. This is the, this is the point, you know, uh, in terms of the steps that she could take. It, yeah, she can, she can declare her faith. It's not to say it's allowable to, to declare her faith and stay with her husband. You know, this is, it is sinful. But it's a lesser sin, you know, they're not declaring her faith because that will determine, you know, ultimately heaven and hell for her. So the declaration of her faith, she should start with that.
you gain in both this life and the next. Read the word, please, brother.
No, it's not necessary for convert wife and husband to remarry. No. No. Not required. Unless their marriage was one of those living type arrangements, right? Because you have in the Philippines people are married informally. You know, you have a living who is who you who ends up like your wife. You have children and everybody accepts you this is your wife. But in fact you are not formally married. In that case, it would be better if you came into Islam to get formally married. And the civil. Yeah. But there's a third kind. It's called the living. Yeah. No, no, no. No, <laughs> no what it is, because the living in a, is, 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 is different from it's just a mistress. Because you have people who have lived together for years, they have children and everything, they're living together, they're forming, you know, it's like an informal marriage. It's like an informal marriage. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So you have that third form, right? Which, you know, would be preferable that such a person, you know, people, if they became Muslims, that they, you know, formalize it. But their children would be looked at as their children. Yeah. It's not necessary. Huh? Is it to remarry? If they were married formally, no. It's not careful. To remarry after becoming Muslims, if you were formally married previously, this is not preferable. I'm saying if you did it, we not say this is haram, but it's not preferable. Why we say it's not preferable? Because when the daughters of Prophet Muhammad went uh, after accepting Islam uh, and were separated from their husbands for some period of time, when the husband accepted Islam, they went back together without a remarriage. So this is the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad So the preferable is not to remarry formally. To go to sleep early? Uh, brother's question, is there any hadith which advises Muslims to go to sleep early? Like after Isha? We could say that the recommendation for making Salat al Fajr more or less is a recommendation to go to sleep early. Because the later you go to sleep, the more difficult it is to make Fajr. Yeah, but you know, in terms of the Prophet Sallallahu stating, you know, go to sleep after sunset or go to sleep after Isha or, no, we don't, not that I, I recall. His own practice, but you see, the thing is that his own practice again, you see, unless he has linked it up somehow with a command or something with a reward or something like this, then it becomes a natural practice which we are not necessarily required to follow. 
You know, because there are certain things that he did, because once you do that, then there are a lot of other things. He used to blow his nose in his garden. You know? Are you going to know to work this? To do this? He advised us if you're going to sit, don't sit on your right side or under your shoe, but sit on your, or sorry, in front of you or to your right side, but sit under your shoe or to your left. Are you going to talk to someone in the master's Sit on your left? Sit under your shoe? No, you see, you have to understand that there are certain practices which were particular for that particular circumstance, you know? And those things, especially those things which Prophet did, which he did not connect with the religion through saying that there is reward in it, or, or do it this way, you know, a command or suggestion, recommendation, if we don't find that in it, but just something he did, then we are not uh, expected to, to follow that. If you follow it, you know, because of your intention of trying to be as close to Prophet as possible, you get reward for your intention, but it's not, it's not for the action. And we know this for a fact because of the fact that Ibn Omar, who was considered to be the companion who used to most closely imitate the Prophet he was known whatever kind of dress the Prophet would get, he would go and get a dress like that. The Prophet got a ring, put it on his little finger, he got a ring, put it on his little finger. He used to walk this way, he used to walk the way the Prophet walked. He used to do everything the Prophet used to do. It was Ibn Omar. But now Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, Ali, they are not known to do it. The leading companions, those upon the Prophet guarantee they are going to be in paradise. Only Ibn Omar used to do it. The Prophet didn't prohibit Ibn Omar, but he didn't recommend what Ibn Omar was doing. So you on a personal level, if you choose and you decide that I would like to just be like the Prophet of in everything that I can be, you get reward for your intention. However, this is not something which Islam says you should do or encourages you to do it. But in the things that he has commanded us to do, he has advised us to do, etc., these are the things that we try to find and do. Well, I, I don't know. Um, I know there is a statement that Prophet um, you know, after Isha, he didn't used to entertain uh, guests and visitors. People would not come for. Uh, discussion or talk, no visiting after that time. But uh, this was his own personal uh, practice. This is Tahajjud. Well, the issue used to delay to the the latter part of the first third of the night, okay? So, I mean, he's not praying it initially when it came in, but he would delay it somewhat, no? But, um, uh, in terms of the latter part of the night in general, that is Tahajjud. Right? But he was still Tahajjud with something, he didn't stay up all night and make Tahajjud, but he went to sleep and got up, you know, in the latter part. When does Isha prayer become late? When when it, 
When it becomes outside of its time, it's after the coming in of Fajr. But the preferable time is before the middle of the night. The middle of the night, not meaning midnight, 12 o'clock, but the middle of the, what is considered the night is from, if you take the time from the setting of the sun to the, to the uh, beginning of the dawn, and you divide that, that gives you what is the middle of the night. Praying before sunrise is fulfilling the basic obligation of prayer. Praying in Jama'ah is to get the full reward of the prayer. And for the man's prayer, the maximum reward comes when he prays in congregation in the masjid. If he prays in his home, he gets the reward of that prayer, but not the maximum reward, which is praying in congregation. Well, the majority of scholars hold that it is not sinful. Uh, some minority do hold that the prayer in congregation is in fact itself compulsory. So to pray it, deliberately pray it, uh, individually, is considered a sin. But I, I think this position is a weaker position. Twenty-seven times for praying in congregation in the masjid. Yeah, 27 times more than praying as an individual. Again, we're entering into an area of speculation, right? You know, unless you, somebody can produce a hadith in which Prophet said, go to sleep early. After Isha prayer, go to bed. See, then we cannot say that it is not permissible or it is disliked. I would say only from the point of view that if a person finds that in staying up late, they are missing their morning prayer in Jama'ah, then it becomes dislike for the person to stay up late. Because whatever is going to affect the fulfillment of the command, it must be something which is disliked, or may even be haram. Right? So as they say, you know, they have a statement, the fuqaha, or this scholars use, you know, whatever is necessary for the fulfillment of something which is compulsory becomes compulsory. Mala yatimma al-wajibillah bihi So if 
The only way that you can get up in time to pray Fajr is to go to bed early, you have then it becomes compulsory for you. But we cannot take this for everybody because other people may be able to go to bed late and get up for Fajr. So it becomes compulsory for you who is unable to get up for Fajr when you go late. Yeah, yeah, I want you to do that. You understand? This is, this is a general question. Okay, inshallah. I think uh, time to call it quick. Um, we hope, inshallah, that the advice which the Imam gave us from the khutbah is something which we all will take to heart. The importance of the kalima tayyibah, good words. And we try to implement this in our life, not just something we've heard, we've discussed, we've intellectually understood, but something which we should try to implement in our life, make it a part of our, our interactions with people, you know, and... No, but let's roll out, we can talk with it after, okay? Uh, yeah, but we're gone now, man. You know, we're running down now, man. Just closing down the show. <laughs> so, uh, inshallah, we ask Allah to, to help us to, to make this kalima tayyibah a part of our, uh, our makeup, a part of our nature, a part of our daily life, and to reward us with its effects, the tawfiq in our actions, in this life as well as in the next. In conclusion, we ask Allah that He brings you benefit through this lecture. For more information, you may contact us through the following address. The Islamic Propagation Office, Rabwa, P.O. Box 29465, Riyadh 11457, Saudi Arabia. Phone 445-4900 Also 491-6065 Fax 497-0126 If you would like to listen to more beneficial lectures, feel free to visit our website at www.islamhouse.com Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh